And now, coming to you live from the Gershon Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Stroud and Gary K. Wolf with a very special guest, Kelly Robson, on the Coot Street Podcast! And welcome, Kelly. It's been, well, it's been forever since anybody saw anybody, but it's great to, we're, we're, we should let people listening <laughs> to know that we're looking at each other, so it's great to see you. It's good to see you too. It's amazing. I can't even believe it. You're not even people who work in my day job and I'm looking at your wonderful faces. It feels pretty good. Well, I guess that's it. I mean, our science fictional lives have been put on hold. The last time we spoke was 11 months ago on the 10 Minutes with Cood Street podcast. Yeah. How are how are these crazy times treating you now? Oh, it's fine. I mean, we live in downtown Toronto. We are in the lap of freaking luxury. I mean, solitude, but luxury. I mean, we have all of the restaurants in the freaking world just outside our door and, you know, call them up and 20 minutes later, we have the most delicious food. So, you know, I really can't complain, but, you know... Well, it's still lockdown. Here we are in the lovely, the lovely pandemic. Well, one of the things about what can we do? It it must be challenging because I was noticing um, we're going to get to talk about Alias Space and other stories at greater length. But I noticed you wrote your introduction last May when you didn't know what this April was going to be like, and I've I've noticed that with a couple of other books. It must be nerve wracking to know that you're writing an introduction that will be read in a different world from the one you're in. And then it turns out not to be such a different world. Yeah, totally. And, and, and no, it's exactly the freaking same. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, what really struck me when I was rereading that introduction, when I was editing it was um, that I said that I was in the middle of the, uh, (laughs) of the COVID pandemic at, at day like 75 or something, which is ridiculous, Mm. right? Here we are. 13 months into it now. And uh, yeah, it's basically the same. So, you know, I can say that I, uh, I've gotten habituated to life in the tiny little condo with Alex. <laughs> and, you know, the cats have gotten used to having 24-7 uh, cat mom attention. The one thing that has saved our freaking lives is uh, VR goggles, Oculus Quest goggles. Ah, We both have a pair. And uh, putting those on and you can be in a different world right away, it's, it makes the life in the small apartment um, uh, a lot more sustainable than it otherwise would, which is a very science fictional concept, right? It really is. So, I mean, are you still basically physically shut down? What's that? Are you still basically physically locked in? Uh, Toronto is. Toronto is having the third wave. Oh. We uh, went down to total lockdown uh, two weeks ago. And yesterday, the uh, the provincial premier um, put extra restrictions on everyone, basically saying you can't even go outside and hang out with other people unless you're in the same family. So yeah, no, we are we are Toronto is is not doing well. So yeah, we're locked down like like crazy here right now. So the chances are, if I, and it's, uh, if I wanted to visit you in Toronto, they probably wouldn't even let me in, would they? <laughs> They would let you in, but you'd have to stay for stay in a hotel all by yourself for two weeks. Right, which probably uh, which probably doesn't even have yeah, its restaurant that open because that's shut down. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, so you know um, what can you do? Uh, friends of mine moved across the country last summer from Vancouver to New Brunswick, and when they finally got to New Brunswick, they had to uh, um, stay in their new home all by themselves for two weeks. And have people you know, drop groceries on their doorsteps, and uh, and then they could eventually go out a little bit. But you know, you do what you have to do, I guess. Uh, I really feel for the essential workers 
who just, you know, we've been seeing um, pictures of them on buses, like the, the Toronto bus system has been, um, you know, reducing its coverage of the city. And that means that people who have to go to their jobs, who don't have any choice, you know, are stuck yeah. um, on crowded buses, which is ridiculous. And uh, the province hasn't uh, instituted a mandate for paid sick leave at all. Really? Which yeah. is, yeah, no, it's it's stupid. It's um, There is no doubt that the provincial government has mishandled this whole thing. And uh, yeah. they should do better. Yeah, yeah. There's 15 million people in this province who, who deserve uh, better government. So yeah. let me do Let me ask you this. There you are. You're shut in in this apartment, the condo. Isn't it a quintessentially science fictional experience for a writer who writes about life on space stations and on spaceships to kind of be stuck in the kind of sustained artificial environment that you suddenly find yourself in? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the things that makes it sustainable are the, um, the, the people who support our lives outside this apartment. Um, we live in a large condo building, 222 units, and we have a wonderful full-time manager who takes care of everything for us. And, um, you know, uh, 24 seven concierge doorman who receive our packages mm -hmm. and, thing. and monitor who comes in and out of the building and all of the wonderful, um, gig workers who bring us our, uh, deliveries and our food. Mm -hmm. You know, Alex and I cook a lot. Uh, we cook for each other and we love doing it, but nobody can do that, you know, for 13 months straight. So yeah. and we indulge in takeout quite a bit. So um, thank God for the people who support our lives here. It's pretty nice. Oh, oh, oh. And then when we get absolutely sick of these four walls, because it's, it's a 600 <laughs> square foot apartment, right? It's pretty small. Um, then we can put move. on our VR goggles, our Oculus Quest goggles, and I can uh, stand in the middle of the living room, try not to hit the television, <laughs> And uh, kill orcs, kill orcs, like nobody's business. It's fantastic. Well, here, do you find yeah. that you're able to write during this kind of time? I mean, you've got, obviously, your own holodeck to disappear into, <laughs> yeah, and that helps. Exactly. And you're caught in your little spaceship through all of this. And, you know, obviously you've been made more and more aware of how everybody who thinks that they are uh, introverts who can isolate from society and look after themselves are actually thoroughly dependent on, on the entire network that we have. Yeah. But yeah. how does it affect how you're functioning with, as, as a creative person? Well, I got to tell you, um, I'm writing, I'm writing light. I'm writing comedy. Good. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I have a, um, a novella coming out next year from Tor.com publishing called High Times in the Low Parliament. Which is this is a, not the one you were supposed to be doing, is it? No, it's not. It is not. It is not. But I had to write light. So this is a um, lesbian stoner comedy, neo medieval uh, with fairies, and it's pretty funny. Cool. It's funny. I I will go out on a limb and say that everyone who has uh, read it has uh, certified it hilarious, and uh, <laughs> it's pretty sweet. So I've been writing that, and uh, Tor bought that last year. And I've been working on the sequel, which is called um, Down and Out in the High Parliament. So that's where I am right now. And it's fun. It's Fantastic. fun. Yeah. And it's a good the, time. But for the moment, we're here to talk. Sorry, just, right? just, you're adding to the small. Go ahead. My two of my favorite books are Down and Out. One is Cory Doctorow and one is George Orwell. So you've got this little, <laughs> little shelf of Down and Out books now. And I suspect if somebody translated Dostoevsky correctly, one of those would probably be Down and Out. 
<laughs> but I, I want to go back to the what we were saying about being locked down. And this is a very weird effect because it affects my reading too. And we're, we're going to talk about alias space. Yeah. But, oh, parentheses about alias space. Uh, I, I read an electronic version. So when I was writing my review of it, I had to look up the information on Amazon. So I, I did. Just want you to know, and anybody who's listening, that now I'm getting uh, ads for Alias the board game, Alias for Xbox, Alias starring Jennifer Garner, everything. <laughs> no. Those algorithms are not nearly as smart as we think they are. No, they aren't. But here's a weird effect that, uh, that reading your book in the lockdown had. You have uh, one story which by any science fiction standards is bizarre and surreal because it takes place basically in the heart of a space whale. But it's yeah. a confined yeah. space. And then you have a series mm-hmm. of stories, which I love, which I guess are based on a real-life street burlesque performers in Toronto. And they're outdoors. Yeah, yeah. The story that seems strange was the one about people in the street in Toronto. Like, I, could end up, I could identify <laughs> these people trapped in a heart, but out on the street performing? <laughs> yeah, out on the street stripping. Yeah, stripping. And letting it all hang out. And uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, making the, you know, bringing in the eyes from where the eyes do not want to look. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. It's, it's, I have, uh, friends here in Toronto who are nerdlesque dancers. Mm. Uh, they have a troupe called Nerd Girls and they are, they are true fans. They are, they are the readers of all of our, of our, our work. Um, I, you know, I will let every, every author, listening to the podcast, know that you have passionate fans in Toronto who do terrific, terrific uh, shows about Game of Thrones and uh, Harry Potter and, you know, everything you want. Um, uh, They're really fun and good and interesting, very creative people. So, yeah. So um, when I wrote um, kind of a a little trilogy of Toronto stories, Mm -hmm. it was street burlesque that I wanted, really wanted to kind of my vision for Toronto's future, like a really like sexy, beautiful, free future for Toronto is, is, is all about, yeah, a pretty sustainable green city where uh, there are a lot of, you know, if you, if you want to see somebody take off their clothes in a really sexy manner, all you have to do is walk out your door. Cool. Sounds like heaven (laughs) to me. So yeah, so those are those stories. One of the other nice things about those stories, which I uh, I think I mentioned, and it's something I've just gotten hypersensitive about in the last ten years. They're not all young people. Um, some of them have been uh, have been using burlesque as a political statement for decades, and it's still a way of uh, it's still in let's say late middle age. It's still a way for them to express themselves. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. One of my uh, one of my good friends is well into her fifties and uh, just started doing um, burlesque. They've been a, a drag king for years, mm. and uh, and they've they started doing burlesque a couple of years ago. And I got to tell you, when um, when they did their first performance in this tiny little dive bar, you know, packed with about seventy five people, and this is here we are. Like, can you even imagine that now? You wouldn't even walk in the door. <laughs> um, that little dive bar, the screams of joy, the applause, the the hoots and hollers literally like popped my ears to <laughs> static. It was so loud because, you know, this tiny little bar, it was pretty exciting. So, yeah, yeah, it's never too late. It's never too late to uh, to to become a burlesque dancer if that's what you want. The community is there to embrace you. 
Well, look, the book we've sort of talked about or name-checked a little bit is Alias Space and Other Stories, which comes out from Subterranean Press this month. It's shipping now, I understand. Tell us a little bit about the journey to this book, because your first stories really only appeared six years ago or so. This is a comparatively like new thing, and suddenly here's this book. You, I mean, in, uh, uh, your one book is, is a novella from Tor.com so far. So how did you what, – what was the journey for you to go from having a few stories out to this? Well, I got to tell you, um, I'm really proud of my work. And when uh, an editor I respect tells me that I should do a collection in uh, 2018, as you told me, <laughs> in San Jose – uh, Jonathan Strawn said, oh, Kelly, you should really have a, you should really do a collection, you know, fantastic. Um, <laughs> so, uh, it just so happened that I was meeting my agent for the first time in, at, she was in San Jose. And, uh, and so when we met, I mentioned to her, gosh, I would really like to sell a collection. So, and she thought that that would be a fantastic mm -hmm. idea. So we started putting a package together and we mm -hmm. sent it out to a few publishers and, uh, you know, Subterranean um, was the most enthusiastic and the most uh, welcoming and and seemed like a really good, um, you know, a dream publisher for me. Mm -hmm. I have a lot of Subterranean books on my shelves. And they're all gorgeous. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I, yeah, they're all gorgeous. And they're a beautiful publisher. And I, you know, I should be so lucky to have a book. <laughs> and now I am. So, Yeah. Um, and now here we have it. So last year I was at this time, I was just coming up for air from the pandemic, the beginning of the pandemic. I was writing my original story, Alias Space, for uh, the collection. And I was putting everything into order. And um, what I did with that, by the way, here's here's my trick for putting stories into order for a collection. So I just wrote all the titles out on index cards and I started shuffling through them and started ordering them that way. And that seemed mm -hmm. like a really good way because you just kind of went through it by feel. This would be a good one yeah. to come after that. No, this one. And then come up with the order really quickly that way. It was, for me, I'm a very tactile person. Sure, so sure. that that helped me think, being able to move those cards around. You know, I'd tried it just listing stories and that didn't work. Um, and then writing uh, writing notes for all of the stories uh, was pretty amazing too. Really interesting. And, you know, I've always loved that. In, I do in, too collections where the authors get to say something about their stories. I just love it. So, um, What did yeah. you learn about about your stories putting the, the book together? Because suddenly you go from, I'm sure, from going, well, there's this story and there's this story to there's this body of work now that's caught between these two covers that is a snapshot of who you were as a creative person between 2015 and 2020. I mean, yeah. that's got to be – an experience. Yeah, it's pretty cool. They're, um, I'm really super proud of how wide ranging they are. Yeah. And I think, Gary, you mentioned that in your review that it's eclectic. Yeah. And I like that. Well, I think one of the But there's still a. Sorry, oh, no, ahead, I, I was going to say one of the things that is, uh, I also said that not everybody probably should put together a collection, but there are so many good stories out there in such a short <laughs> career, but they're all over the map. And and yet one of the things I saw in reading them together, and I'd read I'd read less than half of them before I got the book, is seeing connections between the stories that I didn't think were connected, and suddenly there are 
sort of reflections of one story and another story. I'll give you an example. Your, mo- I, your most famous story, I suspect, is The Waters of Versailles, uh, which is, among other things, very funny and very historical. And um, and the other, maybe the other most famous story, because you got an award for it, was The Human Stain. Couldn't be different, couldn't be more different, and yet they seem to reflect each other. Yeah, they're both about parenthood. Yeah. Um, uh, choosing parenthood in the one case, a man... Uh, in 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 early modern uh, Versailles in France, choosing parenthood, um, and a woman in a human stain in uh, early twentieth century Austria, having parenthood thrust upon her uh, to her destruction. Mm-hmm. Um, it's two different views of the same thing, and I think it, to a certain extent, and I'm making huge generalizations here. I write about parenthood a lot, um, usually in a positive way. But when we're talking about women uh, up to now in a historical time, parenthood is uh, a huge restriction on them mm-hmm. and a huge destruction to their um, their selves, their intellectual selves, and to their potential. So, um, yeah, those stories are kind of two faces of a coin. But One you, is comedy ends did, positively. Did you see that after? You, did you see that not? after you'd written the stories, or was there anything conscious? No, <laughs> I, I I noticed that when you said oh, it. Okay. I <laughs> <laughs> had right. uh, no clue, <laughs> but I you know I had noticed that uh, parenthood keeps cropping into my stories all the time. What can you do? But that's it's the, an issue. That strikes me as well. I mean, you you get someone like Gary who re, who reviews the, the collection. You think, oh, I now see the this work is about that. Does that then? color where you go next because in some ways what i think when i think about you as a writer is it's not that there's a particular palette that you want to use you know do you want to write science fiction fantasy horror comedy dark serious whatever there's a core batch of concerns that drive you as a creative person and they get expressed in different ways yeah yeah so i wonder when it's then articulated like this does it then you go well okay that's now what i do or do you bounce against it and want to do something different no i just want to write the stories i want to write you know, and I have like like all all most short story writers have a long list of things that I want to get to and I want to write, and then it's just an idea of, um, you know, what is the story that uh, that is next, you know, ripest for the plucking um, to write about. Um, there's a story right now that I've been thinking about for years and years, which is highly personal. It's about um, something that happened to my family back in Father's Day, 1977, and for years I've been thinking about it. Years and years and years, and it's 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 kind of a comedic thing, but it's also um, a bit illustrative of um, the tensions and and kind of the fault lines in two two people: my mother, my my stepmother, and my dad, bringing together two separate families into a blended family. Oh. And I've been thinking about it for years about how to write a story about that because it's it's such a a, a powerful. I don't know, situation in my mind. Uh, and I've just figured out in the last couple of months how, how to deal with it. And I was um, emailing back and forth with Michael Bishop about this. And, and I said, oh, I finally figured out how to, how, to, how, to, how to deal with this story. And I said, you know, I've, been, I've had this story seed of this 1977 thing, and I just, I can't get it anywhere, and I can't get it anywhere. But I figured out that I'm going to bring in this other story seed that I also can't get anywhere. I'm just going to smush them together. And he said, oh, yeah, that's fantastic. That's the, um, that's the great jelly and mustard 
he said, the grape jelly and mustard uh, uh, technique. That's what he calls it. <laughs> Two great tastes that you wouldn't know that went great together. So, yeah. So, so, so that's the thing. I'm desperate to write next, right? Once I get uh, my next novella in the can. <laughs> when you have uh, an idea that's yeah. been gestating for that long, that's based in uh, experience, is there a sense that the story is necessarily going to be fantastic, that fantastic fiction is simply what you do, so it's going to come out that way? Or do you feel you need to shape it into something fantastic? No, um, I just need to make it a story. Uh-huh. Um, and often science fiction is the way, science fiction and fantasy or is the way you make a story work for me. Um, it's also, you know, the air that I breathed and the water that oh, I yeah. swum in all my life. Um, so, you know, I have committed things that aren't, that are consensus reality in the past and they've worked and they're fine. Um, and I'll do it again if that's what a story demands, but, uh, you know, in this case, it'll be, yeah, it'll be, it'll be a genre again. It'll be science fiction. So, um, it's, it's, that's what my toolkit looks like. Just in parentheses. I'm so deli- those, are the, those are the best wrenches yeah. in my toolkit. And I'm delighted you're talking with Michael Bishop, who's somebody else whose stories need to be much more widely read than they are. Oh, I love him. I'm reading a book about Michael Bishop. I'll, I'll, I'll plug another person's book. There's a book that's from McFarland by Joe Sanders, uh, Study of Michael Bishop's Fiction, uh, which I'm reviewing right now, as a matter of fact. And he's done amazing Ooh. things over a yes. long period of time. He still has uh, – don't, don't get me started on – Brittle Innings, but nevertheless. <laughs> I love Brittle Innings. I love it's one of my favorite books in the world. Me too. I adore it. The best modern um, Frankenstein he, book there is. I met I met Mike first in um two thousand five at NorwestCon, the Seattle mm-hmm. convention, uh, which was our home convention when we lived in Vancouver. And uh, uh he was guest of honor in two thousand five and was my you know, I had a stack of, of his books this high for him to sign. And uh, I was not the only person in the line who had um, you know, their personal archive of Michael Bishop books. So, you know, mm-hmm. He has a many very devoted fans, as he well deserves. Not nearly as many as he deserves, but he has lots. Very true. Yeah. I mean, one of the, he, he, he edited one of the great anthologies in Light Years and Dark, which changed my reading. Wow. Which is it's actually spectacular. It completely changed my life as a reader, that one book. Utterly really? changed it. Introduced me to more uh, writers who I ended up loving in a single volume than any other anthology ever. Wow. Uh, I think that's where I read Howard Waldrop for the first time, where I read wow. Le Guin for the first time, Lafferty for the first time, a whole bunch of things. So absolutely spectacular book. And also then write something itself like Apartheid, Superstrings, and Mordecai Savannah, which I love, and Unicorn Amazing. Mountain, and Brittle Innings. Spectacular. And so many good short <laughs> stories. Oh, my God. As someone who's obviously connected to science fiction, fantasy, and the whole field, as a reader and as someone who's a participant in the community, how much has that impacted your own creativity? Because you know, uh, 2005, 16 years ago, you're going to signings for with Michael Bishop, and yet, and here you are today and now, writing at the top of the field, being recognized as one of our you know, best short story writers. How's that been an, a, a journey for you? you know, it's a, it's a dream come true. And it is, uh, I often, I often wonder if I'm going to wake up from a coma and find out if this was all a dream. You know, honestly, you know, this is what I wanted all my life. And I had absolutely no expectation that I would be able to write at this level. And I'm so giddy Mm. to be able to do so. And you also mentioned- To hear you say those words is overwhelming. 
you also started late, which is well. Actually, one some, thing you've talked. I'm sorry, sorry go ahead, I was just going to say that it must it must be multiplied that much more for having as you yourself described yourself as the late bloomer. So you uh, started publishing fiction maybe 20 years after a lot of people did, and getting the kind of recognition mm-hmm, yeah. uh, after having sort of waited a long time to dive in the water. Let's say you must feel you're a pretty good swimmer by now. Yeah. <laughs> I do. I do. I feel like I've got the the toolkit, uh-huh. and I've got some good strong tools. And uh, oh, the, the but the best thing is I freaking love it. Yeah, I freaking love it. And I just hate it when writers are like, oh my god, writing is so terrible. No, we're so privileged to be able to do it. We're so lucky. Um, and just you know, if oh, it drives me a little nuts. And a lot of people, you know, need to be angsty. But I've gotten to the point where I waited so long to be able to do it that I just can't angst anymore. I mean, I can complain about, you know, certain things in publishing that might piss me off. Sure. Mm-hmm. sure. But, uh, you know, I'm very, 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 very fortunate and grateful and elated to to write. It's pretty fantastic. I'd love, you know, it'd be nice to be able to leave my day job behind and see what I could do if I was doing it full time. But I don't have to because I can do it this way. Well, and if you let me ask, what took so long? Yeah, I'll tell you. Yeah, what took so long? Yeah, psychological. Um, yeah, uh, I um, mm, without wanting to sound too melodramatic, mm, my childhood was not so great. Yeah. Uh, abusive mother, um, intermittently abusive father, uh, pretty chaotic life um, growing up, and. Um, Part of the abuse was, as an adult, I really doubted my abilities. Mm-hmm. I doubted myself. I had no confidence in myself. And when I was um, about 36, I realized that if I never gave writing a really good try, because I had been dabbling with it, if I'd never given it a really, really good try, uh, it would be the biggest regret of my life. Mm. Mm. And so I, uh, so I buckled down and I really started really, really trying hard to figure out how to write stories. And I have two uh, trunk novels. And um, I found that what I really needed to do was uh, cop cop content from from uh, Shakespeare to uh, to try and, you know, uh, use his plots to, mm-hmm. to figure out how to write myself, which is a really great way of figuring out how to write. I mean, why not steal from the best? Um, and then you don't have to, you know, it's kind of like training wheels. And there wasn't anything. So in, I know I'm. Uh, I'm sorry. Finish your thought. No, no. I was going to say there wasn't anything in your background, in, in terms of your family life or, or necessarily your education, other than your own love of science fiction and fantasy that would lead you in a literary direction. In other words, it doesn't sound like you come oh, from God, a literary no. culture at all. No, 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 no. My uh, very culturally impoverished um, family, you know, kind of like the mom had. in Lava Tess. <laughs> yeah, kind of like the I mean, you know how to steal books from the library. I can tell. I do know how to steal books from the library. I'm really good at that. Uh, um, yeah, uh, yeah. No, it. it um, I don't regret waiting. I don't regret letting my material mature because I think that one of the reasons why the work is at the level that it is now is because I didn't waste my material when my uh, when my skills weren't up to using it. So I came into my 40s with um, 
a good backlog of um, experience in life uh-huh. that I could apply to my writing. And it truly is, I am the most surprised person in the world to to find out that that my writing is um, is good. It's pretty happy. It is good. It's a pretty freaking happy thing. Thanks. Do you find basically that the clock is a a motivator now that it's like you've hit your stride, you're creating, you're writing, and now there's this drive to get it done because no, no? Mm -mm. I can't rush. Um, If I rush us. So as I'm drafting, um, I really, I, I draft in a linear fashion and I generally know a couple of points along the way and I know where I'm going, but I don't know any of the details and I don't know how to get from point to point to point. And um, so when I am drafting, I'm storytelling and I'm telling the story to myself and I'm figuring out how to tell the story. And I'm, I'm, I'm you know, what needs to go next? What needs to happen next to make it feel like a really good, robust story to myself? And it's not done. It's a draft. Um, so if I rush if things start going off in really weird directions and that bad storytelling directions. <laughs> That's what actually happened with a human stain. Um, I tried to rush through the draft. Mm-hmm. The, the draft that I initially uh, submitted to Ellen Datlow uh, looks nothing like, <laughs> like the actual story. She saw something in it and made me rewrite it five times. And uh, yeah, it's because of her that that story works because she just made me keep going back and back and back to it. If I had taken my time instead of rushing, I probably would have gotten there a lot faster. But no, I can't rush. I'm just going to do the stuff, write the write the stuff, the stories, as good stories as I possibly can, and get them out when they're ready, when they're ripe. Which is, uh, well, let me ask, which story was took the small, the shortest amount of time to write? And which <laughs> well, strangely, um, uh, a study in oils was yeah. the longest story written in the shortest time. Oh. So a study in oils um, came out of the uh, Danjai um, uh, Science Fiction Workshop in China, which I was invited to along with a whole bunch of other writers from Canada and the US. And um, the deal was that they would bring us to China and they would tour us around these wonderful um, uh, rural province of China looking at anti-poverty um, initiatives there and meeting people from the local representatives from local indigenous um, groups who are um, prevalent in this area, very impoverished area of China. And um, when we got home, we would write a science fiction story of 12,000 to 15,000 words if we could within a month, two months if we absolutely had to, but preferably within a month. And they paid us fantastically for it. They paid us, you know, over a market rate for it. Uh, plus, that was just for the Chinese rights, so we could sell it here in North America, you know, for first, you know, first. Uh, what do you call it? First English rights. Things? Yeah. yeah, first English rights. Um, so you know, it wasn't as though they were taking us to China and and saying, "Now you'll write a story for us for free." No, they were paying us very, very well. Mm. Um, and I really love that story. A study in oils um, is one of my favorites. And uh, the weird thing about it is I forced myself to write it in a month and it turned me weird. Like the idea, like, like uh, blinkers on to the world doing nothing but writing that story and working mm-hmm. at my day job for a month. And I realized about week three, I was at a meeting in the, in the, with my boss 
in um, our company boardroom. And halfway through the meeting, I realized that I was, I was reclined back in my chair and I had my legs up on the table. <laughs> like my, my id was, was really expressing itself. Um, like I had just gone completely feral. Uh, just you know, from the from the act of you know trying to be nothing but a writer for a month. So yeah. So yeah. what was the hardest one to write? Oh, so oh, the most difficult one to write. Yeah, was definitely a study in oils. Oh man, I you know I must have spent oh revising that thing. Each of those five revisions must have taken thirty hours. Like oh man, it was just it was so intense. And what what Ellen? Are you talking about? You said a study in oils, but but you meant a human sorry, stain. not a study in oils, <laughs> a human stain. Sorry, yeah, a human stain. I don't even remember what my stories are called anymore. Um, a human stain. The revisions took a really long time. They're really super intense. And what Ellen Datlow realized was that I didn't really know what was going on in that story. I thought I did, but I didn't. So she kept like picking, like, what is really going on here? Do you know what's going on here in this in this this section in this scene? I'm like, of course I do. Really. And then I think about it for a while. I'm like, no, actually, let's see the revisor. Another question. <laughs> another question that comes up. Uh, well, you, you mentioned, for example, how completely different that world is, say, from the Waters of Versailles. And the Waters of Versailles shows good, solid historical research. But the thing that's interesting is that everybody talks about more than I want to listen to is world building. And mm. And, and and while you've done a lot of that, we, we haven't talked really about God monsters, God's monsters and the Lucky Peach, but there are, what, maybe three stories in the collection that are more or less set in that same future, aren't they? So, so you are building a world out there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, I have, I have the economics of that. Basically, all of my, all of my science fiction, huh, yeah, I would say all of my science fiction is related to each other. Uh, basically, all takes place in the same mm-hmm. world. Why would you? Why would you world build more than one science fiction future? <laughs> well, well here's right? one of the things I like about this. You, you, I have diatribes on everything. One of my favorite science yeah. fiction writers okay. ever is Cordwainer Smith, and every Cordwainer Smith story suggests some vast backstory, which he never tells you. You're inventing his universe yourself as you're reading these stories. A critic, uh, a, a British critic, uh, whose name I'll think of in a minute, called these epic fables, in which, by which he meant a short story which implies a whole universe. Uh, you know there are massive things going on outside the edges of the story, and those stories are so compelling precisely because of the world that isn't built for you. Right, right, because it's it's implied, and you can feel, you can sense that the writer knows exactly. what's going on. You trust them. Yeah, yeah, I like that. I like that, and I hope that some of my stuff would feel that way because there is a the world building is deep and thick. And um, I've done a podcast about it. Um, so if anybody wants to know what the world building for that is, there's there's a podcast out okay, there. Great, you can it's linked on my website. Uh, but honestly, don't don't. Because it doesn't matter. Right? It should <laughs> well, it's feel for you, isn't right. it, Ryan? So you know what all you're that, doing. Yeah, all that matters is that it feels right. And I won't bore you by telling you it now. Um, but what I will tell you is that I do believe that in the future, the unit, and this is this is already coming to pass now, the unit of measurement for value will be human time, eyeball time. Yeah. yeah. So that's what it's all based on. Well, let me ask you this question, because Gary mentions God's Monsters and Lucky Page, and I'd mentioned that it appeared to me that you were writing something other than what I thought you might be writing. So 
Isn't there supposed to be a second story in that yeah. universe? Yeah, it's going to be a novel. It is a novel now. Okay. And it was going to, it, it's been a son of a bitch of, um, of a, a, a struggle to get this thing written. Um, and I think the problem is bad thinking. Mm-hmm. Like I've thought about it and thought about it and thought about it and planned it and planned it. Like I don't outline, but, you know, conceptualize and figure out bits along the way. And I've, I've gotten first draft, 10,000 words, throw it out. Next draft, 20,000 words, throw it out. Next draft, 40,000 words, throw it out. Another 40,000 words. Like it's, and I think that the problem has always been that um, I don't know how to write a novel yet. <laughs> I'm still figuring it out, Jonathan. <laughs> Oh my God, what the fuck? Who knows how to write a novel? Tell me. <laughs> <laughs> well, some people seem to come to it, but I mean, when you you mentioned, you've, you've just name checked or told us 110, 120,000 words worth of writing that you've done to this point, get yourself, I imagine, some kind of bits and pieces that ultimately may, you may get to use, and some of which will be that stuff that gets plowed onto into your imagination to get used for what comes next. And it occurred to me to ask the question, I mean, the dreaded question for any competent short story writer surely is, when are you going to stop this crazy stuff you're doing and get onto the real business, start writing novels? Which is terrible and disingenuous and wrong and not what creativity is. But have you felt that drum beating in the background? You know, sort of, when are you going to write a novel? Yeah, I mean, um, a story that requires novel length, mm-hmm. I would, um, which is what I think the sequel to God's Monsters, Lucky Peach, requires. So I'm, I, I love short stories. I could be perfectly happy doing nothing but writing short stories forever. Well, your answer is essentially well, the same as Ted Chang's because people ask him this probably once a day. And it's always, if, if the story is a novel, if it comes to me as a novel, it's going to be a novel. But until then, I'll write what I'm writing. It strikes yeah, me as yeah, eminently yeah. sensible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, um, we got those those lists of things, right? Those lists of short story ideas, things that are burning in the back of the brain, and um, you know the difference. You know the difference between a novel sized idea mm-hmm. and a short story sized idea. Usually, you know the difference between a you know a five thousand word story idea and a fifteen thousand word story idea. So, so the novel, um, whether it's a novel or a long story or or, or a novella really is, is determined by the shape of the story as it comes to you. And not, not I'm going to learn how to, novel, how to write a novel and then write this, but I'm going to learn how to write this, and then maybe it's a novel. Yeah. Uh, it's, it, I'm sure you're familiar with the most famous quotation from Gene Wolfe, which was that you never learn to write a novel, but if you're lucky, you learn to write the novel you're writing. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. That, that each, each novel is... is is uh, you learn to write ag- over again. Mm-hmm. You learn to write from scratch. Um, I like I like Howard Waldrop's um, definitions of what a short story is, which is um, uh, is about the most important thing that ever happened to a character, and that a novel is um, the most important time in a character's life. Those things um, are are those are two really simple rubrics that I hold in my brain and that really help me conceptualize what a story is and what a novel is. Are you finding that uh, writing novellas is giving you a better feel for how to approach this task? You know, yeah, I think talked so. About, yeah, yeah. Um, so writing High Times in the Low Parliament has al- allowed me to kind of stretch out a bit 
um, to, to let the storytelling kind of be a bit more loose and a bit more relaxed and, and the same with the sequel to it that I'm writing right now. Um, so I think that is a good thing. Like the short story is so compressed mm-hmm. and so punchy and so on point. Whereas a novel really can't be that or you'll drive yourself crazy. It has to stretch out a bit, right? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think so. I think this is going to help me. What I'm writing right now will help me with the novel. One of the, and are you finding that when you finish one of these longer stories and then you turn around to come back to short stories again, that the tools that you're bringing to it have changed? I don't know. I honestly don't know. Um, I hope I'm getting better. Mm. Um, I hope that what is interesting is, um, because I'm just thinking, I tend to just think about writing as a storyteller, not as choosing elements, choosing elements for effect. Um, I was, uh, talking to a science fiction writing class a couple of months ago, and they were discussing, uh, my story, What Gentlewomen Dare, which is my most obscene story. Mm. And uh, they loved it, which is really surprising to me. Um, and they asked, one of the questions they asked me was, in the beginning, the, uh, the main character, Lolly, steals this white dress from a corpse. Mm-hmm. And that, they're like, that's got to be a metaphor. That's a metaphor. You know, how did you come up with that metaphor? I'm like, that's a metaphor? Because <laughs> I, I don't think of it that way. That's just not the way that these things come up serendipitously for me um, as a storyteller, not as a person who's pulling um, ele- uh, pulling pulling elements out of the rule book, does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Like it's a very holistic. My process is pretty holistic. Well, you, you, so, you mentioned something. I'm, it, I'm I'm fascinated that they like that story because in some ways it's a very disturbing story. Uh, oh, it's horrible. And, yeah, well, it's terrible. I don't know. I don't know what you do. If I were still teaching, I guess I would be worried about trigger warnings now. But but that story yeah, and yeah. Um, that story and uh, Jessica Churchill, the three resurrections, are absolute trigger warning stories for anybody that I would sure. recommend them to. And yeah. yet they're very structurally and cra- from a point of view of craft, they're very good stories. They're very well constructed stories. Um, and I don't know where I'm going with this question at all, except that. My, my immediate reaction, Steve, I want to get a little bit to writers that you've read and writers that helped shape you. And one of the things that occurred to me when I was reading The Three Resurrections of Jessica, no, it was not that. It was, well, both of those stories reminded me of um, James Tiptree Jr., uh, specifically <laughs> yeah. The Screwfly Solution or Raccoon yeah, and They're both very, very, um, The Three Resurrections of Jessica Churchill is highly influenced by the only neat thing to do. Yeah. Um, uh, which is a, uh, I love, and I've always loved. And um, uh, James Tiptree blew my freaking little mind at the age of 17. You know, when I read one of her most weird stories in Asimov's magazine, I'd never heard of her before. Wow. And then, you know, I followed, followed her through the years. And um, yeah, that is utterly 100% Jessica Churchill comes from, from Tiptree. Well spotted. And um, uh, what Gentlewoman Dare is a story that I've been, I've been trying to write and I've been trying to write and I've been trying to write. Um, and I'd gone through about nine different starts. Um, it had started off as, oh, I'm going to write a 
um, steampunk story for my friend, mm. uh, Dominic Prezien, who is editing a steampunk anthology. But I just couldn't go there. I don't think steampunk is my is my genre. Um, I, and I couldn't get it going. And I, I needed to write something about colonialism. And I needed to write something about violence against women. And it just really just needed to narrow down into really a wedge into the problem of, of violence against women having been something that humanity has dealt with for 100,000 years or more and hasn't killed us yet, even though it should have. Because why have women survived and put up with this for generation after generation after generation? I haven't been able to figure that out. So this is, this is the question that I had in my mm-hmm. mind for, for that story. And, um, and I, I, for, you know, I didn't write the story for Dominic Parisian. Uh, he and I kept, you know, meeting at cons and, and he lives in Toronto, you know, meeting on the street. He's like, yeah, are you ever going to write that story? You know, not for me, but are you going to write it? And I'm like, yes, I guess, but I can't, I can't, like, I can't figure out. And I'm just like, basically, I can't even talk about it with him. I'm just like pulling out my hair. I don't know what to do about this. And he said, why don't you think about the screw fly, screw fly solution? I'm like, oh, bing. There's the screw. <laughs> well, right? any number of- and I just reread Nobody. Any number of people I, uh, who love that story, or love is probably not the right way to describe reading a Screwfly solution. But there was a sense there needs so to be payback. It's just so that, that story demands some kind of payback. Yeah, it does. <laughs> well, we, 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 yeah. okay. So we mentioned it's um. I had we've we've mentioned Tiptree and yeah. I was just going to say I'd I'd read that uh, I'd read reread the Screwfly solution unwisely right before the 2016. Mm. Um, election happened yeah so it was not good timing i really frightened myself with that one we yeah, go ahead it. go ahead it's all your uh, you, well do you want to take this in a different direction jonathan because i was going to i was going to say we've mentioned well, i was going to say Rakuna sheldon i love that name i, I wish you'd gone on using that name but nevertheless we've talked about um yeah. tip tree we've talked we've mentioned howard waldorf we've mentioned michael bishop i know from your telling us earlier that one of the people who got you started writing was connie willis um uh, so, oh yeah. So who else? Who else formed? Who else besides Connie Willis? Um, Maureen McHugh. Okay, great. Um, Maureen McHugh. Oh my God. Um, so her her early short stories, um, the Lincoln Train, and uh, gosh, she's such a good writer. Why Blue isn't Moon. she writing Blue Moon more? Is one oh you God. mentioned. Uh, Blue Moon, Connie Willis. Um, so, yeah, I mean, Connie Willis has been huge to me ever since I was 16 years old. And, you know, I, to the extent where I can remember the circumstances around all of the most um, uh, important to me, discovering the most important to me of her stories in Asimov's, like where I was, what the cover looked like, what I was wearing on that day. Um, those stories and... Um, Spice Pogrom, her wonderful, wonderful Spice Pogrom story. It's it's this rollicking um, comedy, uh, goofy comedy is so good. Really heavily influenced um, uh, Waters of Versailles. Hoping you'd say that. Yeah, yeah, no. It's hard to bring off humor in science fiction. Maybe it's not hard, but not very mean to people try it. Well, let me tell you about my upcoming (laughs) novella. (laughs) (laughs) there's <laughs> this fantasy it's not science fiction but uh yeah um gosh gosh and gosh um i can i can 
um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a truism of podcasts that when somebody asks you about the writers that you love, all of their names go out of your head. <laughs> you just, there's, there's no way you can possibly remember them, but uh, um we're not putting you on the spot here. I was just um, mentioning, I I, I know I I could sense in the waters of Versailles that maybe that, because I read that before you and I ever met and I could sense maybe there's some Mm -hmm. Connie Willis back here because like I say, it's it's just absolutely slapstick at at, at points. Um, Yeah. yeah, Very slapstick. And, uh, and it's, it's something I've noticed. There've been anthologies of, of humorous science fiction and fantasy, but when you list the great authors, the classic fantasy authors, the ones that everybody knows, basically you end up with everybody in this column, hundreds of people, and over here are Terry Pratchett and Douglas Adams. <laughs> Why are there so few? No, it's true. I have no idea. I, I don't know. I don't know. It, maybe it's because we need to be self-serious. I wonder about that. I sometimes wonder if science fiction and fantasy feels that it needs to take itself too seriously in order to get mm-hmm. the attention of the professors. I'm sure. Yeah. Well, because we all know comedy isn't serious. Yeah. I mean, even you look at the su- that superficial thing about what kind of a film is going to win at the Oscars. Yeah. You know, a comedy is, no matter how good it is, going to be exponentially less likely than a serious drama because it made you feel the feels, and those feels yeah, are very serious, the very big important. serious thing, as opposed to you know, sort of a light comedy that may have dealt with just the serious matters, but didn't put them right in your face. And so, mm-hmm. you know, you reacted differently. I'm curious, listening to you talk about influence. There's this, there's this story that's told about how the science fiction, uh, the genre field develops that, you know, so-and-so writes, somebody writes in response to it, somebody mm-hmm. writes in response to it and so on. And yet it's never really that mechanical sometimes rarely it is but you know if you'd said to me kelly robson's fiction is influenced by robert heinlein i would have said not particularly right yeah i read lots of heinlein when i was a kid um but i don't i wouldn't say that i when i was a teenager and young adult that is but i wouldn't say i'm influenced by him i'm influenced by john kessel Hey, sure, but you're influenced by Connie Willis, right? But you can't hang on, Gary. Mm-hmm. You can't be influenced by Connie Willis without being influenced by Robert Heinlein. Oh yeah. Because for sure. everything that she's written, well not everything, but a lot of what she's written is influenced by Robert Heinlein. She would say that he is her primary influence herself. So you get that kind of flow down that isn't you're influenced by Heinlein, but you're influenced by people who are influenced by Heinlein. You yeah, yeah. love Tip Tree's the only neat, neat thing to do. The only neat thing to do couldn't exist without a predecessor story that actually it's in response to. And so there's yeah, this yeah. dialogue that evolves that isn't mechanical and is surprising at times. And that must be an interesting thing to find yourself part of. <laughs> I love it. That's a dream come true right there. <laughs> how, how can I be so lucky? We're, we're, to be part of this genre, we're entering a we're entering a generation of writers being influenced by Kelly Robson. How does that feel? That would be very cool, but I don't think we're quite there yet. But uh, that would be awesome. Um, <laughs> but we're certainly in a, in a generation where writers are influenced by Kelly Link, who didn't start really. I mean, started is, is of a. Of a same age, but perhaps started a little earlier. And people who feel to someone my age as being Kelly Link doesn't feel like an, a writer who's been around a long time, even though she's been around a long. Time. Yeah, yeah. No, she started writing in like the early two thousands or something, right? Like er, no, no. I think before then. Before, before then. Yeah, um, but her book started appearing a little later. Um, and so you sit there, kind of going, "Well, time is moving on, 
and people are influencing people and the people people who are looking to us i mean like right now we're at this time where the field is changing and that must be very exciting to be part of because i mean by if by waiting to be published till the time you are you're now part your work is now part of this time that is evolutionary change all the time that is change in perspective that is more inclusive that is more thing so that a lot of the stuff that you are I mean, like I look at Alias Space, right? I look at the, the, the beautiful jacket that sits on it. I'm going, that could be influenced directly by John Varley, <laughs> you know, as as a distant descendant of it. And now the things which seemed, do you feel are things that are now being talked about in your work and in the field that would have been much more difficult to talk about 20 years ago or 30 years ago? <sighs> I don't know. Um, certainly, uh, we're hearing voices that Mm, were not embraced 20 or 30 years ago, which is a wonderful thing. Um, but the, the, the genre has always had a lot of radical stuff going on in it. Um, you know, even, I I wonder if you, did you catch the, the, the Gene Wolfe reference in, um, in the story alias space, the free live free. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. Um, it, 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 science fiction has always just been so amazing. And I, I wonder, I wonder if one of the reasons why science fiction is as dynamic as it is, is because the upcoming generations are really willing to both be influenced by the writers who have come before them and to reject them mm-hmm. and to think that what they are writing, what I am writing what uh, my friends down the street are writing is completely new when it really isn't. <laughs> when a lot of the stuff that we're doing has been done before. Uh, but that still keeps it new uh, because it's still dynamic. And we have this, this feeling as though we're turning something over or, or revolution, you know, causing a revolution. And whereas the revolution is a lot smaller than we think it is, but it doesn't have to be very big to be influential and important. Uh, also, well, that's, I'm I just think, pulling that straight out of my butt. That's, okay. No, that's great. That, and uh, because I think that when you talk about evolutionary or revolutionary change, it's not only in plot ideas and here's a great idea for a story, but it has to do with point of view. So, to to one extent, and I've I've, I've, I've said this before, I'm sure that if you take a, a common idea like a generation starship, which has been around for 80 years at least. Um, and reimagine it, as I can think of two or three examples in the last five years, just reimagine it from a queer perspective. It's a new story all over again it, because you're looking at it from, from a different yeah, angle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're looking at it from different kinds of characters, and you're reinventing uh, what, uh, what some of the old professional writers of the 50s would have said. You can't do that idea. It's been done before. If you do it from a completely new perspective, it hasn't been done. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it made me think, whenever I think of Generation Starship stories, I think of Michael Bishop's story, Cree de Coeur, mm-hmm. um, which is maybe the one story that is my biggest influence. Really? That mm-hmm. his, his beautiful, gentle humanity, um, emotion, gentleness, sense of being, the, the worth of being a caregiver. Mm-hmm. Mm. And the the uh, the idea of going into the stars and and bringing the best qualities of humanity with you, not just the intellectual ones, but the emotional ones. Oh, I love that. Yeah. I just love it. It's such a beautiful story. 
So you have caregivers showing up in some of your stories too. All the time, constantly. I can't get away from it. <laughs> they come up when I'm not expecting it. What can I do? It's a thing. And it's something that um, that science fiction hasn't dealt with properly, right? Like if we are going to have a huge freaking um, human populated galaxy, who's having those kids? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Because it's not women. They're not body birthing them. That's just not going to happen in the future. It's just not. It's too... Eh. The only way, the only way to have women physically giving birth to children in the future is to have them uh, as they have been in the past, indentured labor. I was going to say because the it's still in in intervention. It's still kind of women's work. <laughs> in intervention, it's not though. Um, Jules is ungendered. Okay, you're right. Nevertheless, and many of the caregivers are uh, are men. Yeah. It's, 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 it's people, it's the work of people who want to do it. Well, yeah, I guess that's. And it's the work of people who want to do it in a, a really good, um, fantastically supported way where they're supported professionally. They're supported emotionally. Mm-hmm. Um, their full-time job is caregiving. They don't have to, you know, make a living at the same time. Right? The, the idea of, of being, uh, working in a crash in ideally is like, all you're doing is just loving those kids. But it's, it's what I mean about reinventing an idea, because the idea of being raised in a creche is, is almost a cliche in science fiction, creche children. And you have stories and oh, novels sure. that just, nobody talks about who works in the creches, who actually does, you know. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and exactly. that was, the first thing that struck me when I read that story was, this is a story about the kinds of workers you don't, leave, you don't usually see written about. Yeah, yeah. But their stories are, they're really interesting. They are, they're really yeah. interesting people. And... If you professionalize something, there's going to be issues that come along with professionalizing uh, what has been basically a faith-based profession mm-hmm. for years, for generations, for the entire of humanity. Interesting issue, something I like to think about. I like to think about professional services. Um, I've always worked, my day job has always been in professional services firms, which yes. is uh, firms where you have nothing to sell but people's time and brains mm-hmm. and um, processes. Um, so yeah, so I like to think about, about the problems behind that. Cause there are a lot of problems, um, behind professional services. And I think that hopefully in the future, uh, we won't have gig workers doing jobs that, um, that robots could do. We'll have gig workers, um, instead of doing that, they will be professional services professionals who are managing the robots that are doing the jobs that the gig workers do. Hmm. It's my idea of the future. It sounds like you've been well, giving I us a lot of thought. A lot of thought. Oh, I have. <laughs> I have. <laughs> well, I should say we're getting to the top of our hour. We normally chat for about this long, and it's been a pleasure talking to you. Oh, a it's been genuine so pleasure. Part of a, a dialogue that I expect will continue for some time, and we'll talk to you back here again and in person someday, someplace, <laughs> somewhere, when we feel confident again that we can see each other. I mean, more and more it feels like, yeah, maybe next July or August <laughs> or September or something. That sounds fantastic. But, you know, somewhere down the road. Yeah, I but would love for that. The moment, for the moment, Alias Space and Other Stories is out. You can buy it in ebook and in beautiful print deluxe hardcover edition from, and directly it will be from Subterranean. And audiobook as well. 
and an audio book directly from Subterranean Press or from your reputable and or if you really insist disreputable outlet out there somewhere near you. It contains some wonderful varied uh, stories, an original story, the, the title story, and some fine, fine, fine award-winning fiction. But for the moment, Kelly Robson, thank you so much for making the time to talk to us today. Mm, thank you, Jonathan and Gary. It's so lovely to see it your faces. great to see you, and we'll talk again I don't know when, but we'll do another podcast even if we can't get together. So until we do that, this has been. We'll meet again. We'll we'll meet again. Don't know where, don't know when, but that's the song that was used to destroy the world at the end of Dr. Strangelove, which is a great way to end. Um, Until next time, (laughs) this has been the Coon Street Podcast.